History happened everywhere. A random place, a random time, and a topic pulled from the hat. The challenge? Find the fascinating, uncover the unexpected, and share the stories. You're listening to... History happened everywhere. My name is Ryan Weir and I'm here in the HHE studio with the Ich Bin to mine Berliner. It is Mr. Peter Goddard. Oh, lovely to be here, Ryan. How are you doing? How's it, how's it been? It's been an exciting time. I was buoyed with confidence and excitement uh, when I, uh, we first rolled the topics. Do you want to remind us what they were? Absolutely. Last week, the Dursleiter gave us community in Germany during 1650 to 1700, but I'm sure you're aware of that. I was very much aware. I thought that was going to be a doddle. It was not a doddle. Uh, <laughs> what is Germany, after all, in 1650 to 1700? More complicated than you might think, but we're about to find out what it was. Hmm, okay. I'm intrigued. <laughs> Peter, bist du bereits again? Yeah, my podcast host. <laughs> right, off we go. We are going to learn about the Holy Roman Empire. What's that? Well, I can tell you. It's not holy, it's not Roman, and it's not really an empire. But other than that, that tells you everything you need to know. <laughs> Uh, we'll learn about possibly the most devastating and destructive war in European history and discover the literature it inspired. We'll meet the man who got the ball rolling for the country we now know as Germany and on the way, we'll even hear a few grim stories. So we're talking about the Federal Republic of Germany. Uh, it is a central European country, so you'll find it in the middle of Europe. Germany is 65% of a France. Really? Yeah. How many Germanys in a France in early 1940s? <laughs> early, early 1940s. France and France and Germany and some more. <laughs> You've got a good lot of change out of your France <laughs> at that time. But here's the thing, it's uh, 65% the size of France, but it's 83 million people, which is much more than France. So there's more Germans than there are French, even though the French have got more space to wobble around in. Uh, but their flag is a black, red and gold bars, horizontal bars. I'm sure you're familiar with that. It's a strong image, isn't it? Very Bold colours. Slightly confusing when the vertical version is, I think, Belgium, is it? The, yes, the... which is very close. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it has, of course, a national anthem. Would you care to play the national anthem? I think this is one that most people are familiar with. So this is the tune. This is the hymn Gott erhalte Franz der Kaiser, written in 1797 by the Austrian composer Joseph Haydn. Now here's the thing. World War II happens, as we will mention later, and after World War II, the anthem wasn't changed, but they stopped using the first two stanzas. Deutschland, Deutschland über alles is now the taboo part of the anthem that nobody sings, you don't sing it. It's not banned, but it's super frowned on to do that. But it's still the same tune, they just go straight in on the third stanza, and that is still their national anthem. The, the problem is this is, Pete, I can't get excited about it, because as an England fan, this just brings back bad memories yes. of every tournament that we have lost in. Yeah, it is the sound of our imminent defeat at football, isn't it, in many ways? <laughs> 90 minutes later, <laughs> we're out. But yeah, I didn't realise that. I thought Deutschland über alles was the... Well, it is the same tune, but like I say, the, the, the bit that you and I know mm. at the beginning is super frowned on to be sung. Pete Doherty sung it in 2009 to round booing in the Antwish New Apology. And in 2017, an American singer called Will Kimball did the same thing, which is an understandable mistake. It's the same tune and it's the words that you know from history, as it were. I feel like um, someone ought to have told them as well, given that they're just the performer. Yeah, they should have probably got a memo of some kind and probably <laughs> skip that first bit. Right. I mean, <laughs> How I'm guessing... old is your book that you got the lyrics from? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Friedrich Nietzsche, you may be familiar with, philosopher, yeah, philosopher. Of some renown, called Deutschland über Allies the most idiotic slogan in the world. In the world? In the world. So it's a pretty big country, but in the north, the landscape's kind of a big wide plain stretching up to the North Sea. Then as you go south, it becomes rolling hills and then Alps with hills and mountains and valleys that is probably more what you think of when you think of Germany. You tend to think of that more mountainous side of it. Have you ever thought about getting into real estate? Because I think you make an excellent salesman. Ah, oh, well, you fancy a little pad in the mountains of southern Germany, do you? No, all of Germany. That sounds great. Well, <laughs> that's what they felt about France. <laughs> nice fixer-upper. <laughs> 
Now, uh, there's forests, and Black Forest is one of the most famous forests in Germany. And it's a, cake. a mountainous forest, and it creates a, it is also a cake. Uh, it's 6,000 square kilometers of Black Forest, and that's a lot to get lost in. And it's believed that location inspired the tale of Hansel and Gretel, because this is, of course, the land of the Brothers Grimm. Mm. Uh, this was a couple of brothers who collected, it's out of our time period, but they collected and retold traditional German tales, which tell us a lot about this fun-loving people. I'll tell you some of the lesser-known stories. I'll start with the mouse, the bird, and the sausage. Uh, a mouse, a bird, and a sausage all live together. They each have a specific role in the home. The bird collects wood for the fire. The mouse is in charge of collecting water and lighting the fire and setting the table. And the sausage keeps everyone well fed. Wait, what? Do they eat him? I think he adds flavour to the stew. He doesn't then get eaten. Wait, by wait, wait, wait. What's he doing to add flavour to that stew? Well, here we go. I can explain. Because okay. complaining that they've got the hardest job, the bird says we should all change roles. And so the sausage goes out to collect wood. Wow, this is a disaster waiting to happen. Well, he gets eaten by a dog. Yeah. So, yes, it, they didn't have to wait long for that disaster. The mouse tries to cook like the sausage by throwing her body into the pot to add flavour. Uh, then the mouse dies. Uh, and as for the bird, he falls into the well when collecting the water and drowns. So, in short, everybody dies. Wow. Did you enjoy that little story, Ryan? <laughs> I did. That's a lovely fairy now, tale. Now go to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, Pete. Hey, Ryan. Did you know that I'm part German? Really? Yeah, yeah. My mum was from Hamburg. Is that right? Yeah, her name was Patty. She's a hamburger. Oh, really? Yeah, she'd often find herself in a bit of a pickle, you know, which is the source of a lot of her problems. Right. Yeah, she used to grill me and my brother about doing our homework before she'd let us out, you know, to play. Yeah. And one time, she was really angry because I came back in covered in mud from my head to my toe. Ryan. Yeah? Are you just doing burger puns? No. That'd be too cheesy. Is the moral of that story for the chef not to put his sausage in the soup? The moral of the story is to stick with the job you've given and uh, don't flat share with a sausage because that's just weird. That's the, my main takeaway from it. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, Google typical German and what do you think you get? Uh, a man drinking beer in leather chaps. In lederhosen, exactly. <laughs> lederhosen, yeah. um, holding, and at the very first result, you get a man holding a big stein of beer. Big stein of beer, Lederhosen, yeah. little feather in his little green hat. Oh, and yeah, the a green big hat. sausage on a fork. <laughs> <laughs> so that, whilst that is typical German, that's really mostly a Bavarian thing. Okay. And you'd see a lot of these kinds of people when, do you think, particularly? Oh, Oktoberfest. Oktoberfest, exactly. And when is Oktoberfest? Not in October. Correct. Don't try and trick me. <laughs> Uh, is it even a festival? It, Nobody knows. <laughs> it's a real thing. Uh, this year it's from 17th of September to 3rd of October. Okay, well, so it is in October. It is, just about, yeah. It's just one example of a Volksfest, uh, this mm. one being held in Munich. It is a special example, though. It's the largest beer festival in the world. Nice. So the mayor of Munich will tap the very first keg of Oktoberfest beer at noon, and once the first barrel is open, everyone else can get their beers in and they officially start Oktoberfest. And when the beer comes out of the keg, if it sees a shadow, there will be... If it goes back Snow. in the uh, barrel, then you wonder what is going on. <laughs> the laws of physics have gone mad. Uh, but I thought, in a hat tip to Germany, we'll get this German podcast started by an official opening of the keg. A keg? A keg. Oh my lord. So it's a metal keg. It's about the size of my stomach. <laughs> Should we do it in the bathroom? <laughs> How much am I supposed to turn it? Good job I did that before. Sure you want to do that bit there? Yeah. Okay. Alright, so what are you doing? Pulling out a tap tap bit. So Brian has successfully extracted the tap and it's sprayed a fine mist of beer into the glass, which is now approximately 20% drink and 70% foam. <laughs> so Ryan, like the mayor of Munich, you have officially opened the podcast with a small <laughs> glass of mostly foam. Right, let us start. Well, who do you think gets there first? Uh, I was going to say Columbus, but then... 
That's <laughs> <laughs> unexpected twist in your history. <laughs> no, it would be early man. Early man, of course. In 1907, a bit of mandible jaw was found. I was going to say, that's not that early. <laughs> no, no, before that. Yes, in '97 was the finding of the mandible, which was found near Heidelberg, uh, indicating people in Germany at least 600,000 years ago. Whoa. Also in the 1980s, they found some 380,000-year-old wooden javelins which is surprising because wood does not tend to preserve. Yeah. Also, what are they doing? That was like just sports and stuff. I think it was hunting javelins rather than uh, they were shot put and the Dist- javelin. Distance throwing. <laughs> it was the fi- discovery of the hurdles that was most surprising. <laughs> <laughs> Um, in fact, there's quite a lot of old geezers in the area because in 1856, the fossilised bones of an extinct human species were found in a cave in the Neander Valley near Dusseldorf. Okay. The Neander Valley. Wait. <laughs> <laughs> is it the Neanderthals? It is the Neanderthals. They're about 40,000 years old. Oh, sorry, I was stuck thinking about the Stone Age Olympics <laughs> and, and the winners getting a stone medal and the runners-up getting a stone, stone. medal. <laughs> what did you get? Stone. Stone. Is that good? <laughs> anyway. But in the first century BC, you start to see Germanic people starting to arrive down from Scandinavia and northern Germany, and they spread down and around the whole of the area, really. Mm. In Roman times, Julius Caesar referred to the unconquered area east of the Rhine as Germania. Ah. So you're starting to see this little country of Germany coming together, really. So there's a bit of back and forth between the Romans and the Germanic tribes. Uh, Some cooperate with the Romans, others fight the Romans. Uh, And eventually the Romans basically give up and they draw a line under the matter, a literal line, the Limes Germanicus, which is Latin for Germanic frontier. And that's just a bunch of fortifications dividing Roman Germania from, and that's a few provinces, Germania Inferior, Germania Superior and Raetia, uh, from the northern unsubdued scary tribes. So they did that in uh, England, right? That's with the Hadrian's Wall. Very similar to Hadrian's Wall in, in Scotland, where they go, oh, we'll just build a wall. <laughs> Forget that bit. That's not <laughs> happening for us. <laughs> yeah. So by the third century, the Germanic-speaking people begin to migrate all over the Europe. There's lots of large tribes, some of which you probably have heard of. The Visigoths. Yes. Ostrogoths. Yeah. Vandals. Yeah, definitely. Burgundians. No. Lombards. No. Saxons. Yes. Franks. Yes. They all played their part in basically diminishing Rome as Rome declines. These tribes are roaming around the map. It's a bit Games of Thronesy, isn't it? A little bit, yeah. A little bit, but less organised, I would say. Mm. Uh, we see the creation of this time of stem duchies, which is... We're starting to see states come together, exactly as you say. We start to see some regions we'll recognise. The Duchy of Swabia, you may have heard of. Yeah, we've, we've mentioned them the before. The Duchy of Saxony, the Duchy of Franconia, the Duchy of Thuringia, and the Duchy of Bavaria. So mm. these regions are starting to be familiar. In 476, the fall of Rome. <gasps> And the rise of the Frankish Empire by 500, Clovis united all of the Frankish tribes and ruled Gaul. And this is the start of the Frankish Empire. Go Clovis. Go Clovis. I love that name. Fast forward to 768, the Frankish king Charlemagne comes to power. He Mm -hmm. expands to the east, including tribes such as the Saxons and the Bavarians. So he munches up the more traditional German people that we know of. And in 800 AD, Charlemagne was crowned Imperator Romanorum, Emperor of the Romans. And this is the start of the Holy Roman Empire. Okay. So, you know, I said that the Holy Roman Empire was not Holy Roman or an empire. I wasn't the first to make this observation. The French writer philosopher Voltaire snagged that. If you want to Google it, it won't come up with me. It will come up with Voltaire, I'm afraid. <laughs> uh, but, but what was the Holy Roman Empire? And this is part of why this was quite a difficult episode to do, because it's kind of a place and not a place all at the same time. It right. was basically, it's not really a country. It's, it wasn't really an empire. It's a, a club of regions and cities. So lots of small states all ruled over in theory by one emperor but it wasn't direct rule particularly it was more just like a like i say a gathering and club of all these warring states and cities so they all pledged allegiance to the holy roman emperor which means just giving money right generally yeah so but they're still always bickering amongst each other and in fact it really fluctuates it goes from sometimes there's about 50 different states or territories and up to hundreds up to possibly even a thousand at some point because not only are there regions that are kind of like geographic states as we might think of them early duchies and things like that there's also a network of free cities as well so individual cities cities oh. have their own government and identity and uh, so that's partly why you can have hundred, literally hundreds of these different independent entities all operating under the banner it's a brand really as much as anything else of yeah. the holy roman empire it's amazing isn't it 
but then it actually becomes quite a problem for the Holy Roman Empire that it doesn't have this single actual unity as a state because around, all around it, other countries start to actually become proper countries as we would recognize them today. And then in one particular area, in the France area of Europe, a gentleman called Napoleon uh, mm. very much establishes one big country, yeah. <laughs> rather more uh, potently than the Holy Roman Emperor. And he starts roaming around the European map. He does well, doesn't he? He does very well. He doesn't win in the end, but uh, what actually happens is he does so well, they, people of the Holy Roman Empire get scared that he's going to take the Holy Roman Emperor throne mm-hmm. and actually take over this area just by taking the one guy, the Holy, the Holy Roman Emperor and his title. So what, what they do to stop this, to stop Napoleon taking the title, is on 1806, the very last Holy Roman Emperor, Francis II, who was from the House of Habsburg reign, we've met the Habsburgs before. We have. He abdicates. He says, right, I'm not the Holy Roman Empire at all. Anyone who had uh, any obligations or treaties with me, scratch that. That's over. We're not an empire. You're all on your own. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> Drop mic. Yeah, basically. Wow. <laughs> so suddenly it's just a bunch of states, right? So the main areas then become Prussia, which is Germany and Poland a little bit, basically. The sort of East Germany, Poland area. Okay. And Austria-Hungary, which was still run by the Habsburgs. What a traumatic time for everyone at that point. Oh, it's horrendous. And we're going to talk about, so that's a little bit before this, but um, there's still plenty of trauma to be had in our time period as well, mm. don't worry. So Prussia becomes the very martial state, very powerful in the area. And eventually in 1871, King Wilhelm I of Prussia was declared German emperor, and that unified the area states into a German empire. So now you're starting to see an actual Germany come and together. Is that the first time that we're seeing the word Germany used I think that so, way? yes. So then World War I comes along and Kaiser Wilhelm was Kaiser of Germany and King of Prussia. But it was all Germany at this point. So, uh, and also Kaiser comes from Caesar, the Holy Roman Empire. That's yeah. a Roman connection still coming through. You may know this already, but in World War I, Germany lose the war. The Treaty of Versailles signed, big reparations, a humiliated nation essentially, but the, the country doesn't really get over it, as we know. They think, we'll have another go, let's have a second world war. And they, they actually exist from 1919 to 1933 as the Weimar Republic. Uh, but then in 1933, it becomes Nazi Germany. And then it's Nazi Germany through to the end of the Second World War, which uh, I'm sure you know, they lose. Wait, what? <laughs> no, spoilers, I know. <laughs> so yes, uh, Nazi Germany loses World War II. And then from there, Germany becomes divided into two Germanies, East and West Germany. And then throughout the Cold War, 45 to about 1990, you've got East Germany and West Germany and they're two separate countries. And why were they split into two? Uh, they were split into two because essentially the, at the end of World War II, the Western powers came from the West and uh, invaded Germany that way. Russia and came from the east and they met sort of in the middle more or less in germany and they went draw a line down here and they'll make it into two germanys basically yeah and i remember now from your episode uh, the euro special episode where we were talking about exactly that thing ah yeah we were but in 1990 east and west reunified into a single germany and today it is the largest national economy in europe it's the fourth largest gdp in the world wow that's huge yeah uh, and it's the home of Volkswagen, Mercedes, Siemens, Adidas, Aldi, Bosch, SAP, DHL, Audi. And this is 80 years after losing the Second World War. Yes, absolutely. They rebuilt That's, very successfully. It's incredible, due to isn't it? The Marshall Plan, which was uh, American funding, more or less. I'm just paraphrasing heavily, but right. uh, there was a lot of support to rebuild Germany, particularly West Germany. And when East Germany reunified with West Germany, there was a quite a, a large economic impact as the much poorer eastern half had to be absorbed into the much wealthier uh, west or well, not absorbed into but unified with so willkommen auf germany yeah good ja yeah fairy tale time fairy tale time okay a wizard disguised as a poor beggar liked to kidnap girls i mean he kidnaps one young lovely and decides he's going to leave the house and leave her at home he warns the girl he wants her to do two things while he's out. I don't. Should we be telling this story, Pete? It's all right, because the two things are look after an egg. Keep it on her person at all times. Okay. Like you do. And to not enter the forbidden room at, <laughs> at any cost. Now, what do you think happens? Well, she lost the egg and uh, she went to enter the room. Well, you're half right. She kept the egg as she entered the forbidden room. <laughs> right. And inside that room, she finds a basin filled with blood and in that blood dismembered body parts okay but what was she expecting to find in a room that he said don't go inside well i mean in a way her own fault but in fright she drops the egg into the basin and stains the egg and when the wizard comes home he sees the stain realizes she's been in the forbidden room kills the girl dismembers her and throws the bits in the basin sure (laughs) 
<laughs> so now he hasn't got a, a potential wife, which is why he's kidnapping these people. So he goes off and kidnaps another sister from the same family. From the same family? <laughs> oh, lordy. So he pops an egg in her pocket, tells her not to enter the forbidden room, and then goes to the shops or the cinema. Uh, and exactly the same thing happens, perhaps unsurprisingly. So not to be put off, our wizard slash hostage taker slash maniac goes out and kidnaps the youngest sister of the same family. <laughs> How many sisters in this family? Uh, I believe she's the last one. Uh, yeah, she though surprise. had the good sense to pop the egg to one side when going on her adventures into the forbidden room. Okay. So she sees it. She goes, "Oh, that's horrifying!" Obviously, but when the wizard comes home, the egg is spotless, and he goes, "You're marvelous. I'm going to marry you because you're just the kind of devoted and obedient child that I would like to marry." <laughs> <laughs> what he didn't know is, in the Forbidden Room, she had reassembled her sisters what? from their dismembered body parts, and they'd come back to life. <laughs> Later, when the wizard returns to the house, the girl and her sisters bar the door, set fire to the house, and the wizard burns horribly and painfully to death. And that's another fairy story. Sleep well, child. <laughs> Sleep well. Papa loves you. That's insane. <laughs> it's great stuff, isn't it? Yeah. Right, more history. Now, we're talking about community in 1650 to 1700. What is community? I looked it up as a diligent researcher will, and it said it was a group of people living in the same place or having a particular characteristic in common. Uh, yeah, okay. So, yes, a country, for example, is a community. So a bit yeah. of a, a easy opt-out in that sense. But we're going to look at two stories. One is the destruction of one community, and the other is the creation of a new one. <gasps> it's like um, the phoenix from the flames. Exactly so. Uh, but first of all, I'm afraid it's context time. You have okay. to understand a little, quite a lot, in fact, of the preceding history in order to understand why what was going on in our period was going on. That is fairly common in history. It does. One thing leads to another, famously. <laughs> So in 1517, there was a monk named Martin Luther. Oh, I've heard of him. You've heard he, of him. Very he famous was chap. The door knocker. He was a door knocker. He nailed his 95 theses to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg. Mm -hmm. This is an event considered quite dramatic in history, but there's a couple of versions that I was reading. Some historians say it never happened at all. Some historians say he may well have done it because frequently the church door was kind of the notice board for the community anyway. So it's a normal thing to do, actually, rather than, a, oh, look, well, that's, what's that guy doing? I, I believe that. Yeah, it's more like it's just in amongst all the housemate wanted kind of signs. Yeah. <laughs> but still, the actual walking up may or may not have been momentous, but the content certainly was. And it was uh, created a great deal of upheaval in Europe because it questions the Pope primarily and his authority. Wow. Um, so it questions Catholic practices, particularly the sale of indulgences. Okay. So what that is, is where you basically buy your way into heaven, more or less. You say, oh, I've done some bad things, and, and uh, can someone say some prayers for me? Here's a bag of cash. Can I get into heaven quicker, please? Mm. And they go, yeah, that's no problem. Wait, this is a thing. Where, where do I sign up? This is Well, you just have to become a Catholic first, which brings all sorts of other commitments, I'm afraid. You may not enjoy it as much as you think. Okay. Uh, but what... Uh, Martin Luther was saying was that's ridiculous the only way you can achieve salvation is through your personal faith so you can't just buy off someone and make it up to heaven nice and easy uh, this is all part of it establishing a direct relationship between the believer and the bible itself rather than needing this infrastructure of people priests and the pope to interpret things for you so he said neither the church nor the pope can establish articles of faith these must come from scripture okay which is Pope didn't love because uh, he was previously the guy who told you what everything meant. And now he's saying, no, I just, I'll just read the book, thanks. Mm. <laughs> so not a big fan. Uh, in fact, he challenges the authority of the Pope and the church hierarchy. He says, a simple layman armed with scripture is to be believed above a Pope or a council without it. And this is a time period where there were like medieval tortures. So he doesn't get anything, any of that kind of active uh, behavior. But he didn't know that when he did it. He, I, I would imagine it was a bold move, nevertheless, right? But, mm. um it will astonish you to discover it wasn't a very popular move with the Catholics. But his idea, this idea, kind of took Europe by storm and it sparked what is known as the Reformation. Uh, and this begins a division between Catholicism and Protestantism, essentially, that endures to this day in various places. You know, most notably Northern Ireland in the 1980s as big divisions of Catholic and Protestant. And it all starts here with Martin Luther and his uh, hammer, nail and big bag of ideas. <laughs> Hello there, I'm from Pest Controller here. You've got a door problem? 
Oh, yes, thank goodness you're here. Uh, uh, yes, it's this one here. Oh, righto. Uh, you, you can see the little holes all over it. Oh, yeah. Ooh. And uh, by any chance, have you been seeing any paper around recently? Paper? Oh, yeah. Yeah, sheaths of it. Oh, well, I'm sorry to say you've definitely got a problem then. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah, look at this. You've got theses everywhere. Uh, I'm afraid you've got Lutherans. Lutherans? Oh, yeah. no. Yeah, yeah, you do get a lot of them about this time of year. Oh. It's uh, graduation season, you see. Uh, well, look, I mean, is there anything I can do about it? Well, you could get a priest in or a bishop, anything papal, really. They hate that. Oh, well, that does sound expensive. Mm, yeah, it does add up, especially once you've factored in crook polish, mitre whitener and a big gold ring. Well, it is going to cost you, I'm afraid. Oh, no! And that's before we've even started buying your indulgences. Well, look, is there anything else I can do? Well, you could try and establish a direct relationship with God through your own study of the Holy Scripture and reject the authority of the Catholic hierarchy. And that's cheaper, is it? Ultimately, no. In uh, 1521, Luther appeared for the Diet of Worms. Diet of Worms? Diet of Worms. It sounds terrible, doesn't it? It sounds like something you might be prescribed by an alternative health practitioner. But a diet is a parliament, a diet, and Worms is actually a place. So it was a parliament in a town, which is less exciting than the Diet of Worms. Which is just soil. Exactly, yes. (laughs) (laughs) So they ask Martin Luther to renounce his works, and he says, nah, nah, I'm all right, thanks. So then all around Europe, and especially around Germany, things get pretty tense. Uh, some of the states, especially in the Holy Roman Empire, are Catholic, and some become Protestant. Mm. And they start to fight between and within themselves. There you go. So the Protestant states start to form a bit of a mutual support group. They want to protect each other, similar to what we were saying about the Hanseatic League or the, the Holy Roman Empire itself, groups of people with common interests sticking together. And so basically there's a big old bum fight. The states of the Holy Roman Empire all fight amongst themselves. Sweden goes, I'm going to get involved in this because there's a chance to nick a bit of extra land as well. Denmark joins the fight, France joins the fight, Spain joins the fight. Wow. It is basically a European free-for-all, mostly happening on Germanic Holy Roman Emperor territory. And this is the Thirty Years' War. Okay, how long did it last? It goes from 1618 to 1648. Can you work it out? My maths isn't very good. (laughs) It is indeed a 30-year war that lasts actually 30 years. Mm. And at the end of that comes the Peace of Westphalia. Westphalia? Westphalia. So the Peace of Westphalia did a number of things, but basically it brings an end to the war. And at the end of the war in 1648, so two years before our time period starts, the Holy Roman Empire is basically a shell of its former self. It's been pretty much shattered, devastated. Somewhere between four and a half and eight million people have died. Whoa, what? Yep. Famine, disease, fighting, devastate populations. It's not uncommon for a place to lose 50% of its population. Wow, okay. Farmland was destroyed. People weren't around to operate the farms, so there's no, nothing growing. More people die in this cycle of life. Contemporaries record people eating grass, too weak to even accept arms, you know, uh, mm. charity. And instances of cannibalism were frequently reported. Well, yeah. People were that hungry. Yeah, I guess so. So uh, even 20 years after the Peace of Westphalia, a Lutheran theologian called Joachim Betke exclaimed, How miserable is now the state of the large cities, where in former times there were a thousand lanes, today there are no more than a hundred. How wretched is the state of the small and open market towns. There they lie, burnt, decayed, destroyed. Wow. Uh, So, okay. So all these people died so that these countries could take more land. As ever with religious conflict, it's religious conflict with a dose of, I'm going to get more stuff for me thrown in. So the Swedes were quite interested in expanding their territories, as were the Danes. The Spanish were Habsburgs. So I think there was a family connection there. So it's still all about, it's claimed to be about religion, but you know how much of it really is about power. That's a tremendous amount of people though. It's, it's huge. The, the, it's, it was considered one of the most devastating wars in European history. My God. When you look at the death toll as a proportion of population, it is ma- massively more, by a factor of two, three, more devastating than World War One or World War Two. Wow, that's incredible. And yet we didn't, I didn't learn anything about it until the last couple of weeks. Yeah, I mean, it happened over a period of 30 years, right? So World War One happened over, what, four years? True, yeah. World War Two was, what, period. five years? <laughs> yeah, five, five years? Five or six years, yeah. yeah. Depending on which bits you measure from. So yeah, it did go on for a lot longer. So maybe if they'd continued. <laughs> if, they, if they'd have just kept it up, they could have had a, a, a challenge to the 30 years war's devastation record. Wow, that's incredible. It's amazing, isn't it? Mm. So 
that is the setting the scene for our time period, which we're going to talk about. So I haven't started our community talk yet, but that's what you have to understand is we're going into a place where something extremely significant has just happened and the place is just empty, just wiped out. Yeah. It's fairy tale time. Okay. <laughs> this one's I'm, called I'm the getting juniper. ready for bed. <laughs> this one's called the juniper tree. Okay. A wealthy and pious couple wants a child. One winter, under the juniper tree in the courtyard, the wife peels an apple. She cuts her fingers and drops of blood fall into the snow. Okay. This leads her to wish for a child to be as white as snow and as red as blood. She later gives birth to a baby boy as white as snow and as red as blood. So she dies of happiness. Oh, well. I know, mixed feelings. <laughs> mission, mission achieved, I guess. So the husband buries her beneath the juniper tree and eventually he marries again and his new wife and he have a daughter. Mm. The new wife loves the daughter but despises her stepson. One afternoon after school, the stepmother plans to lure her stepson into an empty room containing a chest of apples. When the stepson reaches down into the chest for an apple, she slams the lid onto his neck, chopping his head off. Oh. Yeah, well, it's not over. The stepmother then basically sellotapes the head onto the body with a wait, 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 wait. <laughs> okay. She bandages the head onto the body, props his body onto a chair outside, and pops an apple on his lap. Okay. Then along comes the lovely innocent daughter, and she says, Stepbrother dear, can I have an apple? She gets no response. <laughs> so she boxes him on the ear, causing his head to roll to the ground. <laughs> The daughter cries throughout the day, <laughs> whilst the stepmother dismembers the stepson's body and cooks him into a blood soup for dinner. Wait, he wasn't dismembered already? Well, the head part was off, but the rest of it wasn't. <laughs> okay, right. Decapitated, not dismembered. Right. Uh, she tells her husband that his son has stayed at the uncle's house, so he unwittingly eats the blood soup of, made of the body of his own mm. child and proclaims it to be delicious. Oh, no! Ah, uh, dear. So the daughter then gathers the bones from the dinner and buries them beneath the juniper tree with a handkerchief. Mm. Suddenly a mist emerges from the tree and a beautiful bird flies out. The bird visits the local townspeople and sings, I was brutally murdered by my stepmother. In it was the boy. Song. It was the boy. A goldsmith, a shoemaker and a miller offer the bird a gold chain, a pair of red shoes and a millstone if only the bird will sing his beautiful song again. What's a bird going to do with a millstone? Well, here's the thing. <laughs> the bird goes home and gives the gold chain to the father and the shoes to the daughter and drops the millstone on his stepmother's head, killing her instantly. <laughs> wow. Uh, the bird then transforms into the son who reunites with his family and this is my favourite bit the end says they celebrate and head inside for lunch <laughs> <laughs> just all in a day's work <laughs> I'm hungry after all that oh, do you like that one go to sleep Ryan <laughs> <laughs> thank you Papa <laughs> yeah, I feel so rested I tell you what though I'm excited to see the Netflix documentary the true crime documentary that about the evil mother-in-law dum dum yeah. <laughs> Where did the bloody handkerchief come from? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> How can a bird carry a millstone? <laughs> okay, back to the Holy Roman Empire. We are now into our time period. We're at 1668 and a book is published, authored by the impressively named Hans Jakob Christoffel von Grimmelshausen. Whoa. Yes. It's called The Adventures of Simplicius Simplicimus and it is considered one of the great picaresque novels are you aware of picaresque novels no the life of someone traveling around like don quixote is a picaresque novel oh okay that's cool i didn't know that was a genre ah yes they they believe it made its first appearance at the frankfurt spring book fair of 1668 interesting point there is still a frankfurt book fair world famous book fair in frankfurt wow, it's been going for that long i guess yeah it went through five editions it was very popular at least two of them went into a second printing so a bunch of people read this it was uh, pretty popular and is considered the greatest german novel of the 17th century what's it about well that's an excellently timed question it's the story of a humble man, well, he's humble at the start, Simplicius and his life. But it's also a story of the Thirty Years' War. So oh, we're interested okay. in it because of what it tells us about how the, the war was perceived, I guess. So it's a story of a man to whom things happen, really. He didn't plot his own life stories, carried on the winds of events, and most of these events are war-related. So this is a fictional story? Yes, absolutely. It's a kind of, it's a, some would say it's a, a moral tale, some would say it's just a satire, probably all of those things, sorry, in various degrees. So we start with our hero living at home. Uh, his house is raided by wandering soldiers and he has to run off. And he meets a hermit and he says, what did thy mother call thee? And he says, she called me lad, I, and rogue, silly gaby, and gallows bird. So he doesn't know his own name. So realising he doesn't know his own name, the hermit names him Simplicius because he is a simple, naive fellow. Yeah. And he takes him in his shack in the woods, teaches him to read. Eventually, the hermit's feeling a bit peaky, thinks, oh, I'm, I'm, I think I'm going to die now. Digs himself a grave and lies down to die. 
which is slightly unsettling. That's how I'm going to go out. Uh, He he leaves Simplicius with this bit of wisdom. He exhorted me, I should at all times beware of bad company, for the harm of that was unspeakable. Of that he gave me an example, saying, if thou puttest a drop of Malmsey into a vessel full of vinegar, Malmsey being wine, into a vessel full of vinegar, forthwith it turns to vinegar. But if thou pour a drop of vinegar into Malmsey, that drop will disappear into the wine. That's quite funny. You've got to be careful who you hang out with, is the lesson here. Yeah. So the hermit's dead, because he just went, I'm going to die now, and lie down and die. Who, Digger Grievous? <laughs> uh, so he goes back to his shack in the woods. He's roasting a carrot over his fire and a bunch more soldiers show up. They try a bit of light looting of his shack, but he hasn't got much. So they say, okay, we'll take you with us if you'll show us out of the woods. And this is a bit of a theme. This happens to Simplicius over and over again. He's establishes some form of life and a bunch of soldiers show up and everything changes immediately. And they come across a bunch of peasants who had captured a soldier, cut his nose and ears off and was sexually assaulted by all of the peasants. Oh. Yeah, there's a lot of rape in this book. Is there? Yes. Okay. So the soldiers catch the peasants, and by way of justice, they rape all the peasants, continuing the cycle of violence and abuse. Justice! Yes. Well, in fact, the soldier says, so must a man avenge himself and punish these loose rogues both in this world and the next. Mm. So he thought he was just doing the right thing, serving justice. But obviously, what goes around comes around. Side note, I'm a little stuck on the idea of him sitting by a fireside roasting a carrot. Yeah. (laughs) That is why I put that detail in. I too had this brilliant little picture. This guy with one carrot on delicately a, roasting it. Returning it really slowly. I'm glad you picked up on that. Yeah. So Simplicius goes home again and his house has been ransacked again. Oh, this is a tough time to live, isn't yeah, it? Well, he thinks about how people treat each other. He says, I pondered not so much upon my food and my sustenance as upon the enmity that there ever is between soldiers and peasants. Yet could my foolish mind come to no other conclusion than this, that there must of surety be two races of men in the world and not only one, descended from Adam, but two, wild and tame, like the other unreasoning beasts and therefore pursuing one another so cruelly. So he's saying there isn't a community. There's soldiers and peasants and they're going to hate each other throughout eternity. Uh, And in fact, he has a dream which I found very useful because it really gives a statement of his view of the community and the world that he lives in. Uh, And in this dream, it goes like this. He says, It seemed to me as if in a dream that all the trees which stood around my dwelling suddenly changed and took on another appearance. For on every treetop sat a trooper and the trunks were garnished in place of leaves with all manner of folk. The roots, moreover, were made up of folk of little worth as mechanics and labourers, mostly, however, peasants and the like. And these, nevertheless, gave its strength to the tree and renewed the same when it was lost. Even more, they repaired the loss of any fallen leaves from among themselves to their own great damage. So whenever a trooper higher up the tree falls off, that is replaced from the peasants who are at the bottom, the roots of the tree, feeding the tree, but also crushed by the tree. He says, uh, all the time they lamented over them that sat on the tree, and that with good reason, for the whole weight of the tree lay upon them and pressed them so that all the money was squeezed out of their pockets so peasants at the bottom just being squeezed and squeezed and having nothing and then he says just above the trunk of the tree had an interval or stop which was a smooth place without branches greased with all manner of ointments and curious soap of disfavor so that no man save of noble birth could scale it in spite of courage and skill and knowledge I mean, he's just describing today, really, as far as I can see. There's a greasy pole. If you're at the top of it already, you're all right. If you want to try and climb it, doesn't matter who you are. You've got no chance. Yeah. That's probably the most interesting dream story I've ever heard, though. It's pretty good, isn't it? it's like, I've had this amazing dream, followed by a very boring dream. <laughs> and then the shopping trolley <laughs> would go straight. It was remarkable. <laughs> So he becomes a jester, he, he speaks truth to power, he argues with one particular secretary, he says, tell me, what deeds so noble and what art so fine have ever been devised as to be enough to give nobility to a whole family for hundreds of years after the death of these great heroes and craftsmen? Did not the strength of the heroes and the wisdom and high understanding of the craftsmen die with them? And if thou seest not this... And if the qualities of the parents do descend to their children, then must I believe thy father was a stockfish and thy mother a place. So if you think actual nobility passes from person to person, then you're probably descended from fish because that's a stupid idea. He's very smart. He was a very smart chap, this Simplicius. He is foolish and smart at the same time, actually. He gets stolen away by some Croat soldiers. Um, Again, he travels with mercenaries. A lot happens to this guy. He has a very busy life. So one thing leads to another and he finds himself dressed as a woman and becoming the maid to a captain's wife. <laughs> this is okay. another favourite chapter title of mine this is 25 how Simplicimus was transformed from a boy into a girl and fell into 
diverse adventures of love. Wow, that could be written now. Well, a captain and a servant, the servant of the captain, both fall in love with Lady Simplicimus. (laughs) (laughs) May I remind you, the old man of the woods. (laughs) Yes, exactly so. He says, as I came out of the coach with my sleeves turned up, obviously asking for it. It's a sign. Uh, My hands, those the servant, was so inflamed by the sight of my white arms, sexy, Mm. that he could not restrain himself, but must kiss me. And I, not greatly resisting that... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the captain, who also is in love with her, before whose eyes this took place, could bear it no longer, but sprang with sword drawn to give my poor lover a thrust. Oh. I mean, you can uh, By sword, as you will. You I, think it, I think he's actually trying to kill him. And one thing leads to another, it all gets a bit uh, grim. He then it becomes clear he's a man because all his clothes get torn off him. So after that, he <laughs> is, is he saved? Not quite, because a judge who is uh, happens upon the scene briefly inquired of the matter. And whereas I hoped he would save me, on the contrary, he arrested me because it was a strange and suspicious thing for a man to be found in an army in women's clothes. And so he became known as Micropenius. <laughs> <laughs> so he has a trial but his trial is disrupted by more soldiers arriving and more fighting breaking out and this goes back to community and his descriptions of the battle and we see a sense of this time period where community and the normal relationships between people and things are turned upside down so the battle breaks out and he's talking about horses here some of them one could see falling dead under their masters full of wounds which they had undeservedly received for the reward of their faithful services mm. others for the same cause fell upon their riders and thus in their death had the honour of being born by those they had in life been forced to bear. So basically the whole world is topsy-turvy. The earth, whose custom it is to cover the dead, was there itself covered with them and those variously distinguished. For here lay heads that had lost natural owners and there bodies that lacked their heads. Some had their bowels hanging out in the most ghastly and pitiful fashion and others had their heads cleft and their brains scattered. Rough old time. Question for you. Yes. The author, do you think that you're hearing stories that he encountered himself or is he entirely making this up? So the story of his life as we understand it, there's not a huge amount of documentation about it, but it sounds a lot like he did not all of these things because it is quite satirical. It's uh, Mm -hmm. quite extreme. But he was taken away by soldiers. Uh, He was a participant in the Thirty Years' War. Yeah. So I mean, they say write about what you know, right? Yeah, it is in its most basic level based on his life mm. but it is also clearly a satirical moral story trying to tell you something about the world mm. he gets smallpox and becomes ugly poor soul this is sometime after he uh, becomes a soldier he, he really has a, quite the career he becomes an opera singer and then he there's another chapter title how he became a vagabond quack and a cheat so he kind of loses his way he becomes entranced by money and uh, status he then graduates to robbery falls in with a community of thieves and again we get some commentary that probably wouldn't be out of place today he says the thief here said defending his lifestyle says my brave simplicimus i assure you that robbery is the most noble exercise that one can in these days find in the world tell me how many kingdoms and principalities be there that have not been stolen by violence and so taken Ooh. Ooh. he goes on to say yay political yeah but yeah <laughs> says yea what could be named more noble than the trade that i now follow i well perceive how many have been hanged drawn and quartered for murder and robbery for so the laws do command yet wilt thou see none but poor and miserable thieves put so to death when hast thou ever seen a person of quality punished by justice for that he has oppressed his people too much wow little bit of politics yeah just a little bit so then i gotta say though there's a lot of story in this book it is a very intense experience were i his publisher stroke agent i'd be suggesting splitting this up into some sequels well there are sequels actually to simplicity itself one of which is the template for the play mother courage which you may have heard of. I have heard of Mother Courage, yeah. So, uh, yeah, so there are sequels to this. Uh, I guess it was a smash hit, but yes, he could have held back on some plot because there was an awful lot lot going through this. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Eventually, he discovers that he is, in fact, the child of a long-lost noble uh, family. Ah, no no longer Simplicicus. No, Compleximus, I suppose. (laughs) (laughs) He has has the classic trope, he has to show the family mole to be believed that he's, in fact, this long-lost child. There's there's enough of that story going around that that must have happened at some point, Someone somewhere went, that birthmark it's the only way absolutely but he tires of the nobility and he eventually realizes that the hermit where the hermit is the way for him and he returns back to a simple life in the woods and uh, the very last line of the book reads god grant us all his grace that we may all alike obtain from him what doth concern us most namely a happy end that's nice and that end is the last word of the book so i read the whole thing um it was not the easiest read but actually not bad for a 16th for 17th century novel well well done for reading it all uh it it doesn't really have a plot that 
just things just happen to this guy he gets buffeted by the winds of fate and it really gives you a sense of this world that has become chaotic and you can't just go, oh, I'm going to learn to be a blacksmith and then I'll be a blacksmith and then I have a career. It's a, I walk down the road and suddenly everything's lost because some soldiers smashed down my house and stole everything. Or suddenly I was in the army because they took me and made me become a soldier. So it's just... Do you think that's because narrative structure hadn't quite yet settled itself? Like we don't have the hero's journey. We don't have like these sort of three act, five act structures in place. Or is it just his style? I think possibly a bit of both because, I mean, we do have sort of long epic styles sagas and stories historically that have that have through line that lead and... to one thing leads to another a bit more than that does here i th- i feel like i'm gonna go out on a limb this is my interpretation but i feel like it's really a statement of how chaotic that era was and how okay. you aren't in control of your own destiny what things just happen to you you become a soldier because you're forced to become a soldier you lose everything you get birded you have your nose cut off or whatever else but it, it's really for me it really is the story of the chaos the loss of community everyone you meet you can't trust they'll probably try and kill you or you should try and kill them and it ends perhaps not coincidentally with him as a hermit the very definition of somebody without a community nice (laughs) (laughs) in a world turned upside down kill everyone rape destroy them burn it all kill and rape further rape more rape Only one man could stay right side up. Life is like a carrot. You think you'll enjoy it, but the soldiers will come and take it away. Give us that carrot, peasant, or we'll totally kill you. One man could ride the waves of war. Steal everything and set that hut on fire. Do it now. I guess I'm gonna need another shack. And even find love. I love you, I've always loved you, and I'm not afraid to say it. Well, that's real kind of you to say, sir. But I don't think I'm the lady you're after. Coming this summer, a story 30 years in the making. Tom Hanks is... Simplicimus! That's my name, sir. Simplicimus, from Warner Brothers. Fairy tale time! Yay! Ah, <laughs> this one. Oh, I just got all sleepy too. <laughs> this one's called the poor boy in the grave. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Another strong start. A poor shepherd boy was pretty bad at doing his chores, and every time he failed, he was beaten and horribly abused by his step parents. Quite right too. Eventually, it all got too much for the boy, and he decided to kill himself with some poison that was kept in the house. Did he not kill his parents? No, he was too depressed. Okay. Uh, the thing was, the poison was not poison at all, but in fact honey that the stepmother had told the boy was poison <laughs> to stop him from enjoying it. So he takes the poison and then, finding himself nourished rather than dying, he thinks, well, this, this isn't working at all. But then he remembers his stepfather kept some poison out in the shed. So he goes to take that. Uh, he goes into the shed and he takes the poison, but the thing is, that wasn't poison at all. It was actually Hungarian wine. Oh, his father just told him it was that to keep him away from it so that he could keep it for himself. Exactly so. Okay. But the intoxicating effect of the wine made the boy feel like he must be dying. So he, not like, unlike our hermit friend, uh, seeks out a newly dug grave in the churchyard where he lies down and hearing music from the nearby church felt himself to be in paradise. Oh. But he wasn't poisoned at all. Instead, he fell asleep, not having been poisoned at all, and in the night, he died of the cold. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to say he was buried alive. (laughs) No, he dies of cold. The end. (laughs) How do we know this? Who was there to say that he died of cold? The parents were grief-stricken and ended up losing all of their belongings in a fire and living a penurious and miserable existence. Oh, good. Too late. (laughs) Good. So, we've talked about the destruction of a community and a man left uh, alone in a shack in the woods as Mm. an alternative to being with people. Now we're going to build a new community. Yes. So, one of the states in the Holy Roman Empire is a place called Brandenburg. 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 Let's go, Brandenburg. Sounds an American. It does, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. Brandenburg and Chadbury. (laughs) (laughs) This area is described as a sandbox. 
partly because the soil is not very fertile and there's really not very much here at all. It's a bit of a scrubby place, is okay. Brandenburg. It plays a little small part in the Thirty Years' War, but as, an, as a nation or as a state, no one really takes it seriously. But then in 1640, Frederick William becomes the elector of Brandenburg. The problem that our man Frederick William had was the true power in Brandenburg lay with the Junkers. Oh. The Junkers are landowners and they had their own, almost the states within your state again. Okay. So they're super powerful and it's a sort of microcosm of the Holy Roman Emperor as a whole. And so uh, he didn't really like these Junkers, but he didn't really have any money and they had all the money is the problem. So uh, he does a deal with them. He says, hey guys, if you give me your money, specifically 530,000 thalers, thaler being a coin, he says, if you give me all that money, you can do what you want. I'll be here. You rule in whatever you want. I won't interfere. I just need the money. And they go, that sounds brilliant. Yeah. And they hand him the money. And with that money, he goes, I'm going to build up a Brandenburg army. Okay. So what he wanted to do was create a standing army. Not So a lot of the fighting in the Thirty Years' War took place by mercenaries. So people with no loyalty. This is part of the reason it was so destructive, because if they didn't get paid, they would just loot and rob their own payment for themselves. They'd trash a place, basically. They had no loyalty to any given individual. They might switch sides if they had enough of an incentive financially, or they might just go on a rampage and destroy whatever they happened to be around. Not keen on all that. So he wanted to create a much more disciplined standing army for Brandenburg. Mm. Uh, so he did that with the money from the Junkers. And the first thing he did with the army is then go Kill to all the, the Junkers. Junkers and go, do you remember <laughs> I said I'd leave you alone? I was totally <laughs> kidding. And now I've got an army. So how do you feel about that? Uh, and they said, well, we don't have an army. So I suppose we have to accept that. Um, he does take the... No he does it quite cleverly. He takes a lot of the nobility from the Junkers and gives them senior positions in the army. So they still have a sort of prestige and a role to play. So it doesn't completely alienate them. But it is quite funny that that he takes their money and then hires an army to go back and go, psych! <laughs> yeah. So this is no ordinary, ordinary army either. It's He has a real emphasis on quality. So previously it was, you know, you could buy your way into the army with a commission and if you were noble enough, you got the big job, right? This is much more a meritocracy. It's much more of a career in the army. So rather than be a desperate place for the desperate, you could get good money and a proper life and a career in the army. So it's turning it from a rabble into a, a quality, prestigious career. Okay. So he gives them roles in this army as well as the, the fact that he's got the army <laughs> to tell them what to do. Uh, he also made huge improvements to his state internally right one of the things he did was positively encourage religious toleration which is nice after the 30 years war where everyone was yeah. kicking the heck out of each other on the basis of being romans catholics or not so he would tolerate basically anyone who he thought would be useful to his country so roman catholics great jews great as long as you bring in some useful skills he also imported huguenots the french protestants i think they are who were fled there they were persecuted in france and so all of these french protestants came to brandenburg and they as all assisted to modernize this sandbox state into a more uh, modern nation. He strikes me like a CEO, like a business leader rather than anything else. Really is a sort of, I'm going to transform this thing and he sets about it and he does it. By 1700, one third of Berlin's population was huge, you know, and they had this flourishing candle trade, paper making trade. And he developed certain trades, particularly with regard to how useful they were for his army. So he encouraged leather work so that he could have boots for his army, the uh, clothing <laughs> manufacturer so he could make uniforms for his army. So this does this, sound like a corporate business. Uh, genuinely, he's, uh, he should write a book, is, is my are, opinion. Yeah. I would definitely do things the Frederick William way. <laughs> <laughs> So he, between being tolerant and also encouraging immigration, the population of Brandenburg-Prussia uh, increases by 33%. Wow. He gives a six-year tax exemption to peasants if they would work farms that had been abandoned in the Thirty Years' War. So this is how he incentivizes people to give back to the land. As and how long has it been since the Thirty Years' War? This is immediately afterwards. Oh, it's immediately after. Yeah. Okay. So the government sends seed and livestock to the farm. So he's just running a relatively modern economy. He's investing mm -hmm. in, he's opening up his nation to the right skills he's steering his economy uh, and he basically develops quite an impressive army and he totally re re redevelops the economy and the other thing he does is he, he does join in various wars but he does tend to just 
pick the side that is going to be useful to Brandenburg. So he's not a man of great ideology. He's just, well, I'm going to join these guys because they're probably going to win and that will give me more prestige. He's swapped sides on more than one occasion because he's only looking out for the nation's, his own nation's interest. Wow, what a guy. Yeah, he's quite an impressive man. So he wins one victory with the Swedish at the Battle of Warsaw and then wins a victory against the Swedish <laughs> in the Battle of Ferbilin. And that's quite impressive because he marches his army marches 250 kilometers in 15 days and then <laughs> fights a battle. He also did, there's one particular battle that I wanted to tell you about because I like the sound of it. There was a raid by the Swedish army when his forces were many, many miles away. So the Swedish army, didn't. this was after they'd lost a battle. So they weren't looking to engage with the army. They just wanted to come in, nickel load of stuff and run off again. So they come in and they raid and nickel load of stuff and they start running off again. And most commanders probably would have been like, uh, okay, that's fine, we'll just leave them. Better than having a big fight and losing men. He goes, no, I'm not having this. He commandeers thousands of slaves from local peasants. Okay. Sticks his army on these slaves, drives them over heavy snow and several frozen lakes. Wow. And they, it goes so quickly, they cut the Swedes off from the coast so they can't retreat back to their uh, homeland. And mostly they die not in a big battle. They mostly just have to scatter and they die of starvation or in the cold. And this is known as the Great Sleigh Drive. Yeah, I can see why. <laughs> can you imagine? I'm trying to just picture that. What an extraordinary scene. I, I, this frozen lakes is what really appealed to me. This army coming hacking across in thousands of sleighs. Jingle bells, here comes hell, soldiers on the way. Oh, what fun it is to fight from a borrowed peasant's day. Oh, jingle bells, sweet and smells, they will run away. Prussian guns are the biggest ones and blow you all away. Uh, so basically, in summary, he totally rebuilt his nation, established a new professionalised army, managed his relationships with other nations wholly to the benefit of Brandenburg, and united multiple domains that his family had acquired, and he built a state called Prussia. Oh. So Prussia was an area, but uh, he's known as the Great Elector because he is the first one to really put this seedling state together that is going to be Prussia. He dies in 1688. He has a son called Frederick, confusingly. <laughs> <laughs> who Frederick wanted to be the king of Prussia, but you weren't allowed to be a king in the Holy Roman Empire because there was the rules from the emperor. But he convinces the emperor to let it happen. I think <laughs> a combination of look at this big army and sure. uh, bribery. And in 1701, Prussia becomes a kingdom, thereby creating an entirely new community that would actually last for over a century. Prussia actually develops to become almost the founding state of Germany, you could argue. So not a bad little run. And then Prussia becomes, as we know, a significant force in Europe post-Holy Roman Empire. Wow, that's and, quite the run. Well, quite so. And even, you could argue, is the biggest part of why Germany gets unified and becomes a Germany mm. in the first place. So It reminds me of the cut and burn technique that farmers use where you cut down your harvest and you burn the ground and everything is scorched. And from that, then you get a richer soil for the seeds to grow. And the Thirty Years' War is kind of striking me as that. You know, it really scorched the whole of Europe and allowed for a lot of new and exciting growth to come through so i'll give you a counterpoint to that so in some areas that's true so there was i read some reports of particularly some of the city states that bounced back quite well but actually for the holy roman empire itself mostly the 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 consensus for a long time was that it set development in the germany region back by potentially a century it was disastrous in actual fact for the long term so this tale of prussia sort of bouncing back and there are some towns that bounce back as well isn't really repeated in the country as a whole the, the general tale is they were set back for decades if not a century by the the loss of resource of people and of crops and just population really so there it is, community or lack thereof in Germany during 1650 to 1700 CE. Well, thank you for telling us such engaging stories. Um, thank you for sharing such horrific nightmare <laughs> fairy tales. Good Not luck, kidding. listeners, sleeping tonight. <laughs> and you can buy the Brothers Grimm stories at all good bookstores. <laughs> I mean, you literally can. That's what's so terrifying. They're still being printed now. <laughs> Oh, my Lord. Well, look, Peter. Yes. Congratulations again. Thank you very much. What an extraordinary feat you have achieved. I, I, I genuinely, I really enjoyed it. And thank you very much for the bringing the beer. 
Absolutely. It always helps lubricate history. But you know what time it is? The eyes of our audience. The world, probably. <laughs> the world, probably. <laughs> turn their beady attention towards myself. The eye of Sauron is upon us. It is indeed. And so, uh, let's switch it on, shall we? Okay, uh, it is on and raring to go. All right, let's see gosh, this bad boy Gosh, it's bristling. It is, it's ready, it's excited, you can tell. Here we go. Your country, sir, is... Wild card. Wild card, okay. So remind me of the rules of wild card. Recap, you have one minute to pick your country or region at the end of having discovered what your time period and topic are. So, okay. to that end, your time <laughs> period is... Yes. 700 to 800 CE. Ooh. Okay. Old, All right. but not that old. Yep, okay. That narrows down my view of where I want to go, though. <laughs> it does, yes, I'm sure. And your topic is... Yes. Blue. 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 It's my favourite colour. It's the best colour. All right, uh, yeah, uh, tune in. It's going to be awesome. Nice try, Mr Weir. Dang it. You have uh, 60 seconds from now to choose your wild card. Okay. Time's up, Ryan. What is your wild card? Okay, my country is Yemen. Yemen. <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah, man. <laughs> oh, Yemen. Wow, I didn't see that coming. Nope. Uh, neither did you. <laughs> I mean, I did, but I just thought, well, it's sort of central. <laughs> Something must have happened there. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, we will find out soon okay. enough. So it's blue in Yemen during 700 to 800 CE. Of course it is. <laughs> I look forward to what you discover. I genuinely do. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so that is our show for this week. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to get in touch about any of the things that we've talked about on this show, or just to say hello to either of us, you can reach out through our website at hhepodcast.com or by email at Pete and Ryan at hhepodcast.com. We would love to hear from you. We love it when you drop us a line, and you never know, you might end up featured on a future show. And one way to definitely feature on a future episode is to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. It's your recommendation that really gets out there to help other people discover the show if you're on tiktok instagram facebook or twitter you can find us at hhe podcast and subscribe to them you'll get an alert every time we post a one minute animated bite that's right and we're going to be back again soon with the verdict but until then a huge thank you to the one and only peter goddard thank you to you ryan weir and that's it i guess all that's left to say is you've been listening to History happened everywhere. Hey Ryan. Hey Pete. I can't sleep. Will you read me a bedtime story? Sure mate. No problem. Make it a nice one. Okay. Once upon a time, there was a young podcaster boy. Like me. And he was set upon by a ferocious wolf. Oh, I like this story. And the wolf jumped on the podcaster boy and gnawed at him with his sharp, white, pointy, ferocious teeth. Oh, this is so exciting. But the podcaster boy escaped. And with one arm dangling from a gory thread. Gory thread, this is good stuff. He staggered back to the studio where he discovered... What? What did he discover? Listener figures were down from last week. Oh, no, no, stop it. I don't like it. And the podcaster boy found the Dursalator had chosen him a small Pacific island. No! On the topic of sport. Oh! In the Paleolithic era. No! And then the stepfather arrived. Hello. Ah! I told you you were going to get slaughtered this week. D+. Plus. <laughs> you happy with that? Oh, did we record it? Oh, yes. Oh, cool. Do you want me to do it again? No. <laughs>